a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Nathan Romas with you. Today, we're going to be talking about a few things, but uh, mostly pertaining to the war on drugs, opioid epidemic, and legalization from a law enforcement side of things. And for that, we got a person with some expertise, I would say, at the very least. We got Jeffrey Stamm on the program. Jeff spent over 40 years in law enforcement. He started as a deputy sheriff in Sacramento, California and finished as a special agent with the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA. With the DEA, Jeff worked both domestic and foreign assignments, and he's been to places such as San Jose, California, Brasilia, Brazil, Islamabad, Pakistan, and Kabul, Afghanistan. And he finished as a special agent in charge of the DEA's Global Aviation Division. Following his retirement, Jeff was appointed as the executive director of the Midwest High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area for the White House Office of, of National Drug Control Policy, where he coordinated drug control efforts with local, state, and federal counterparts. Jeff obtained his master's in liberal arts at Southern Methodist University. He speaks Spanish and Brazilian Portuguese. He's lectured to various audiences at international conferences training venues, community organizations, and universities. And lastly, he is the author of On Dope, a scholarly and impassioned argument for the need to maintain a strong, strong drug law enforcement response across the U.S. He currently resides in Dallas, Texas with his wife, Jill, and continues to take part in speaking engagements, writing, and hot rotting, which maybe I'll ask you about that to start. So welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Nathan. Appreciate you having me, and uh, it's my honor. And uh, yeah, I want to ask about this hot rodding because that, that was kind of thrown in at the end of your bio when I was looking it up. Um, what exactly do you do with that? Are you building cars or are you racing them? Or? Well, I kind of grew up working on cars and motorcycles. Uh, my toy right now is a 1970 Chevy Monte Carlo. And, uh, wow. and I just tinker with that constantly. Um, uh, we also have a 1949 Studebaker pickup in the family that's got all Chevy running gears. So uh, I'm not certainly good at the at the the, the mechanics, the hands-on stuff, but but I truly enjoy it. So uh, well, you're in the right place for it because you definitely wouldn't want to be up here driving that around. You get about maybe six months out of the year, and we also put rocks on our road, so you'll get some nice chips in your windshield. <laughs> well, especially uh, you know buying cars out of Canada, they're they're always uh, rusty thanks to the salt uh, <laughs> yeah. up in that climate too. Yes, very true. I can't wait till we just have fully plastic cars. It's coming soon. <laughs> exactly. Um, so just before we kind of started, I was saying we were going to start with uh, talking about you. So uh, I know that's not usually the thing you kind of been talking about, but um, maybe you could kind of take us back to the beginning. Tell us where little Jeff came from and uh, how you got into this crazy world of the DEA. Well, uh, Nathan, once again, thanks for having me. You know, I, uh, I consider myself a, uh, a child of privilege and, and not the superficial kind that most people are used to talking about these days uh, relative to skin color. But um, I was uh, extremely lucky to be born into a family that, that valued character development. My parents uh, instituted 
uh, or raise their kids with equal parts of love and discipline, uh, taught us uh, the value of hard work. Uh, and, and clearly, these kinds of, of lessons in life um, uh, lead you to, to success throughout your career and your life. So, uh, so once again, you know what, thanks to uh, a mom and dad raising me right. Uh, I've got two brothers in Sacramento, California, uh, growing up at a time when California really was sort of the promise of the nation, um, you know, where, where pretty much anything goes. Um, however, back in the 60s and 70s, when I grew up, um, the, the completely liberal atmosphere was tempered with uh, a very widespread understanding that uh, responsibility is sort of the other side of that same two-sided coin. Uh, I think in a lot of respects, uh, California and uh, America, to a lesser degree, has has forgotten that lesson, that you need both liberty and responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad actually was uh, a uh, deputy sheriff in Sacramento County as well. So that's sort of how I got into law enforcement, I guess. It was kind of the family business. My two brothers didn't. But, uh, uh, you know, I was really lucky to be raised in a household that uh, where I had one of a boy's greatest role models in life living mm-hmm. under the same roof. Uh, my dad was truly a, a great man, not because of so much where he ended up in life, but just his, uh, his daily exemplary character uh, that I learned so much from. Um, I became a deputy sheriff there in Sacramento. Um, but at the time he was a chief deputy, one of the high ranking guys in the, in the sheriff's department. And frankly, I got tired of being the chief's kid. So I looked for a way to sort of branch out on my own, look for different uh, avenues. Um, right about the same time that I had a friend of mine who was in DEA, Sacramento, uh, kind of recruited me. And, uh, and I remember one of the quotes he told me early on was that uh, being a DEA agent is actually the closest thing that exists to being James Bond in terms of the ability to work undercover, to work internationally. Uh, work with some of the greatest investigators and, and, and cops throughout the world. And you know what? After 31 years in DEA, I can tell you that he was absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a wonderful career in DEA. Uh, my first office was San Jose, California. Uh, I came on in 1984, and that was just about the time that cocaine was really starting to explode, um, not just here in the U.S., but certainly in Canada as well. Uh, and I was a little disappointed that DEA didn't send me to Miami, Florida, back in the days of Miami Vice. And uh, certainly that was the center of the universe. But uh, they sent me instead to San Jose, California. Um, and, and I have to say, in retrospect, it was, it was probably the best place one could work at that time. Because not only did we have Colombian cocaine, but we had Chinese uh, white heroin. We had Persian heroin, Mexican black tar. And certainly we had... Uh, methamphetamine uh, controlled by outlaw motorcycle gangs, especially the Hell's Angels. And when you're when you're saying the names like the Chinese white heroin stuff, is that just because of like the source of the country? Well, it was uh, uh, really essentially the color. It was it was pure white heroin versus what was coming out of uh, uh, the the Central Asian countries of Pakistan and Iran, mm. uh, which we called Persian brown. It was more of a tan heroin, less okay, pure. Okay. And then if certainly the, uh, the, the Mexican variety back then was, was black tar. So uh, uh, they called it China white because it was pure white heroin coming out of China at that time. Okay. Um, One thing I do want to just go back to was um, you were working under your dad as the deputy sheriff. 
did he have any uh, thoughts on you going to the DEA? Well, he uh, he had never worked narcotics himself, and uh, um, I, I think he thought it was a, a a good move going to the feds, if you will. Mm. I think he probably would have preferred me going to some other uh, agency, like perhaps the uh, the FBI or Customs, that had a a broader mission. I think a lot of people at the time, and maybe still do, uh, in law enforcement, that if you work. DEA, you're going to get tired of just working one facet of law enforcement your mm-hmm. entire career. Yeah. But I can tell you, uh, as I alluded to earlier, the ability to, to work undercover, to work in the international arena, uh, to promote, to, to work as I did. Ultimately, my final job in DEA was to supervise the entire global aviation piece for DEA. Uh, it's surprising how varied uh, the, the job can be just working dope in an agency like DEA. Wow. And um, what, what do your two brothers do <laughs> if they're not in policing? Uh, well, one joined the Air Force. Uh, one became sort of uh, uh, the, the, the black sheep of the family and uh, didn't get into to anything in government and uh, runs a small pool business uh, still in Sacramento, California. So uh, um, there's three of us on the middle and in a lot of ways, we're all like stepping stones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, awesome. once again, I've got, uh, got a, a great lucky upbringing in my life, uh, with, with family that I had. So you go off to DEA friend recruits you, um, and then you go off to your first posting. Is that what they're called there? Posting? Uh, yes. Yeah. And okay. So you're looking to go to Miami. That doesn't happen. So kind of go through where, what the start of this looks like then? Well, you know what? Uh, uh, my first seven years in DEA was spent in San Jose, California. Uh, and, and at the time, the office there in San Jose consisted of about five agents and five San Jose PD cops. It was just a, a wonderful marriage. Um, I've got nothing but respect for the, the innovative and imaginative law enforcement techniques that I learned from, from my local counterparts. Um, but, but at the time with cocaine still exploding on the scene, uh, DEA at that time had something we called Operation Snowcap, which was uh, sending agents uh, on a temporary basis to South American production companies, uh, namely the, the three Andean nations, Colombia, Peru, Bolivia, um, to, to work with our foreign nation counterparts in those countries to try to stem the flow of, of cocaine and the production of cocaine uh, at that time. So uh, I, I signed up. I, I ended up going to uh, to Ecuador at the time, working with the Ecuadorian National Police. Wonderful, beautiful country. Um, we uh, we 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 found very few cocaine labs at that time. Of course, the ones we did find, we destroyed. But uh, we we did quite a bit to try to stem the flow of of outbound cocaine as well as precursor chemicals at the time coming into the port of Guayaquil, uh, moving their way into. Uh, up the mountains in the Andes, as well as to Bolivia, Peru, and Colombia. So, are the police um, services down there though? Are they mostly? Is it mostly dealing with the military or the national police? Like, how are they structured? Well, they are national police, but they're very militaristic in their uh, mm-hmm. makeup and in uh, the way they operate. They're very top down. Um, the the normal regular line cops don't have very much authority. Okay. It's very much kind of a militaristic kind of a setting where where they're just uh, doing what they're told to do. Well, and you see like a lot on TV about, uh, you know, in 
movies, it's always like it's super corrupt and, and you never know who you can trust. When you're starting out, like it, did that have any kind of influence on how you did your initial posting and the people you're involved with? Or was that even a thing back in the eighties? Like, was it, uh, the belief there that these are, you know, very corrupt organizations? Well, certainly corruption is uh, a problem everywhere in the world. I, I think, uh, to, to quote a, a former U.S. high-level uh, attache in, in Mexico who just recently retired, uh, uh, told me that corruption in Mexico today is worse than you can imagine. Wow. Uh, Mexico corruption is just, is just horrific. But in my experience in, in South America, uh, at least at that time, uh, I didn't really see it. Now, certainly it probably existed. Uh, especially at the high-level political ranks, but uh, uh, working with with law enforcement at that time, we had very specific missions, uh, very specific information that we were able to act on and monitor. Uh, so we didn't really see much blowback relative to uh, our information getting uh, uh, coughed up to the bad guys. Okay. Um, well, how do you? Um, so when you're there and you're talking about stemming the flow of this stuff uh, coming north, what? What is that or what does that look like? Well, certainly uh, interdiction activities, everything from roadblocks. Uh, and, and once again, uh, U.S. DEA agents were not down there doing those things unilaterally. We were working with our host nation counterparts uh, mm-hmm. because we didn't have any inherent law enforcement authority in their country. Uh, doing roadblocks, patrolling rivers. Uh, to control the movement of precursor chemicals upriver or or cocaine downriver kind of thing, um, looking at uh, the the flow of precursor chemicals that at the time we uh, had a very significant operation called Chemcon, where we uh, a lot of the the precursor chemicals at that time were coming coming out of the U.S. So we were working with U.S. chemical companies to place satellite trackers in many of these chemical shipments that found their way to drug labs, uh, enabling us to, to pinpoint where they were and then conduct raids. Okay. Uh, in fact, I still remember a, um, one particular complex of drug labs raided in, in a place called Tranquilandia, Colombia at the time. Uh, I certainly wasn't there at the time, but it was simply staggering to us the level uh, of production um, and sophistication that was going on by the Colombian cartels at that time uh, in, in making cocaine in, in, in the middle of the jungle. Really? Uh, so certainly it was a wake-up call to America at that time. Um, and, and certainly we've made a big dent in, in co- cocaine flows over that time, but unfortunately uh, we're seeing the growth of cocaine come back thanks to liberal policies and, and governments that are trying to appease uh, drug trafficking groups in in uh, all over Latin America, actually, uh, and and cocaine production today, a lot of people don't realize, uh, is about twice as much as it was in in the peak days of of 1993, when uh, that was the peak crack cocaine epidemic in mm-hmm. in our country, uh, and coincidentally was also the peak homicide year in the United States up until now. So the, the link between uh, the drugs and the crime, that's the nexus? Exactly, exactly. And, and we can get into that in a little bit more detail later when we talk about the drug cartels. But, mm-hmm. uh, but clearly that link exists. Um, but uh, right now there's about 
2,000 metric tons of cocaine being produced in the three Andean countries, principally Colombia, uh, but also to a lesser extent, Peru and Bolivia. Um, and that's according to the UN Office of uh, Drugs and, and Crime. Uh, and once again, that's about twice as much as was, was being produced in all three Indian countries in, in the early 90s. So uh, we've gone backwards. Hmm. Um, much of that cocaine now is not completely destined for North American markets like uh, U.S. and Canada, mm-hmm. given the expansion of, of the cocaine trade in uh, not just Western Europe, but, but Asia. Yeah. Um, you know, I, it, it, it's absolutely true that the, the, the vast profits to be made from drug trafficking are actually not in producing the drugs. It's moving them to market. So using cocaine as an example, uh, you can acquire a kilo of coke right now in, say, Cartagena, Colombia for $2,500. Mm. Move that same kilo to North America and increase your profit tenfold. You move that kilo to Western Europe, 20-fold. Mm-hmm. And if you have the guts and the connections right now to sell, sell a kilo of Coke in communist China, that can earn you as much as $250,000 today. Wow. That's why they're engaged in drug trafficking. The pro- profits are simply staggering. Wow. And back at that time, so when you're at this first uh, placement, were any of these other countries kind of coming into play even then? Or is it mostly you're kind of fixated on South America? Like they were the main people at this time and outside influence, not really a big part of it? Well, no, I think at, at the time, the, the, the nation's focus was, was on cocaine because it was exploding uh, in use and it was uh, seen to be acceptable by, by a lot of facets of our society at the time. Uh, but we still had problems with marijuana and Mexican black tar and China white heroin. Uh, we still had all of these other issues going on, especially uh, in, in my office at that time in California with the Hells Angels produced methamphetamine, clandestine labs producing meth all across the country. Um, and and pretty, pretty amazing to me how the Mexicans have completely supplanted uh, outlaw motorcycle gangs in this country relative to meth production. Uh, I know Canada's still got a significant Hells Angels issue, mm-hmm. um, but uh, uh, we, we, we had national... Uh, drug threats from from various parts of the world, but uh, our focus at that time, um, from the White House at least, was was principally cocaine. Um, in 1991, I had the opportunity to put in for a, a foreign assignment, and and I was uh, selected for Brazil. Once again, initially, I was a little bit disappointed because the center of the universe at that time was Colombia, uh, but they sent me to Brazil instead. Uh, learned learned to speak. Portuguese instead of Spanish, which I thought was going to be a lot less useful. But, uh, but once again, I found myself in the center of, of history relative to cocaine flows coming out of the Andean nations through Brazil, uh, not just uh, supplying North American markets, but increasingly at that time in the early 90s, we started seeing a lot more uh, Colombian cartel uh, exports through Brazil to Western Europe. So um, I got to work a, a a wide variety of organizations and cases uh, with my Brazilian federal counterparts. It's interesting at the time that um, the Brazilians at that time uh, really looked at the entire drug problem as, as America's problem. Hmm. And they certainly were, were helpful and, and great partners in, uh, in drug investigations, but they never really thought that it would be their problem. Uh, fast forward to today, 
most people don't realize that the largest cocaine market in South America is in Brazil. Is that just because maybe the drugs weren't staying in Brazil? Like maybe there weren't a lot of end users there? It was mostly getting shipped out? Or was it already a problem there? Well, drug policy experts will tell you there's a problem called leakage, where, where mm. whenever you've got drug flows, there's always going to be leakage of certain amounts of drugs that uh, that stay in the transshipment countries and eventually becomes their problem. Um, that's certainly the case of Brazil. Uh, as drug flows increase through Brazil, more and more uh, drug trafficking groups locally in Brazil um, a desired payment in product as opposed to money so they could maximize their profits uh, by selling to their own citizens. And then fast forward to today, uh, cocaine, even uh, the old fashioned version of crack, which used to be our scourge in this country and still is in certain parts, um, became uh, a, a true scourge in Brazil, especially in their favelas or their, their shanty towns mm-hmm. in uh, Rio and Sao Paulo. Um, Brazil's got a horrific crime rate horrific homicide rate in many of their large cities. Certainly nothing close to what they have in Mexico today. Uh, in fact, most people don't realize that uh, the, the most dangerous city in the world right now is Tijuana, Mexico. And five of the six most dangerous cities in the world are in northern Mexico, wow. thanks to the drug flows and, and organized crime. But uh, wow. um, So where um, you're in Brazil, for whatever reason, they keep placing you kind of on the outskirts of Colombia. They'll never actually put you in Colombia. <laughs> um, what, uh, what, where do you kind of go from Brazil then? Because uh, you've got a, quite a few places you've worked. Well, uh, um, coming out of Brazil, I ended up getting promoted to a sort of first level supervisor in, uh, in a little town called Brownsville, Texas, which was right on the Mexican border. Um, actually, wonderful opportunity because Coming out of Brazil, we started seeing um, the transition from the Colombian cartels owning distribution inside the U.S. to uh, because of extradition to the U.S., which a lot of the Colombian cartels feared greatly, uh, started just selling outright cocaine loads to their Mexican counterparts mm. and then essentially farmed out retail level distribution inside the United States to the Mexicans. So. Brownsville at the time, once again, I probably would have preferred uh, another more exciting, bigger city, but uh, I found myself once again in the middle of history. Uh, Mm -hmm. Brownsville was a wonderful place to work. Um, Drug flows coming out of Mexico. Um, Certainly we had issues with illegal immigration at the time, not what we're seeing today, but uh, was was a problem back then too. But uh, um, we started seeing uh, not just burgeoning levels of, of marijuana coming out of Mexico, but uh, uh, increasing amounts of cocaine and black tar heroin. Wow. Well, when you start to see that changeover from all the cannabis stuff, the marijuana into these other drugs, what was kind of the reason at the time for that? Is it just dollars and cents? Is it easier to package? Like, I mean, a kilo of Coke is a lot smaller than a kilo of marijuana. So what was kind of the main drivers for why they were switching over? Well, I... Well, they weren't really switching over. Mm. Uh, marijuana trafficking never really diminished uh, at the same time cocaine was exploding. Uh, they, they realized that they could make money um, uh, distributing both. In fact, much of the marijuana distribution uh, avenues and organizations inside the U.S. and, and increasingly Canada as well uh, was, was primed to start handling 
cocaine as well. Mm-hmm. Um, now, black tar heroin was a little bit different. That was more of mom and pop operations from uh, from small villages in Mexico that uh, that, that moved black tar heroin. But uh, Mexican marijuana never diminished um, up until recent legalization uh, in many of our states in the U.S. And we can talk about marijuana yeah. in great detail later. But uh, uh, really, the main reason was that the Colombians essentially gave up uh, wholesale and retail distribution inside the, the U.S. to the Mexicans. So they increased in size and strength uh, in, in their predatory nature inside the U.S. Uh, with not just marijuana, but with, with cocaine as well. And then certainly, as we're seeing today, uh, ultimately, they expanded into methamphetamine mm-hmm. and then fentanyl. And, and the whole thing's out of control. Um, while you're kind of coming up through your career and to this point, was there a lot of interaction with Canadian agencies that you came across? You know what? When I first went to Brazil uh, in the early 90s, uh, the RCMP actually had a Canadian um, hmm. uh, legal attache assigned, assigned to your embassy there in Brasilia. Uh, great guy. Did a lot of joint cases together. Ultimately, I think budget cuts in Canada resulting in them no longer stationing someone in Brazil. Uh, but, but yeah, I worked with uh, RCMP and Canadian authorities and in, in various agencies um, throughout my career in, in many different countries, even in, in uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan. Well, and you, you had uh, one kind of highlight that you had sent me from your career where it was about 94 and you were working on some surveillance of the Hells Angels. Can you talk about that? Because there was a connection to Rio in there. Well, you know what? Uh, in 1994, uh, the RCMP had already pulled out your uh, liaison. And I, I'm sitting in the office one day in the U.S. Embassy in Brasilia, and I get a phone call out of the blue from the um, outlaw motorcycle gang intelligence unit from the RCMP in Ottawa. Um, said, hey, listen, we, we just found out that uh, the entire leadership of the Hells Angels from Canada are going to have a meeting and a, a strategy session, if you will, mm-hmm. with the Brazilian Hells Angels counterparts uh, in Rio de Janeiro. And, and because of budget cuts or, or management decisions, I don't know what, he said that uh, the RCMP couldn't send anybody to cover that. So <laughs> could, could you guys in DEA? Uh, and I said, gee, Copacabana, Rio de Janeiro, yeah. um, we're on it. So uh uh, I actually spent about a week um, doing surveillance on the Hells Angels, identifying all the folks that were there. Uh, we didn't do anything real sophisticated, like conduct uh, wire intercepts or any of that, but uh, but just certainly identified all of the Canadian Hells Angels, their American counterparts that were there, uh, as well as the the blossoming Hells Angels chapters in uh, in Rio de Janeiro, Sao Paulo, and Manaus at that time. Um, one particular day, I was out on the beach um, doing surveillance, uh, looking like a tourist uh, on on uh, at a sidewalk stand, drinking a uh, a beverage, taking some surveillance photos. Uh, uh, and at the time, the uh, the uh, sort of traditional or or uh, fashionable swimsuit for ladies was known as a field dental dental floss bikini. Mm, so okay. as you can imagine, it was a horrific assignment. It was terrible. <laughs> it's difficult, but somebody had to do it. Well, I was going to say on the other end of things, the budget cuts, this sounds pretty standard up here. I hear that quite a bit. 
<laughs> so <laughs> well, lucky it, for you. It's with everybody. <laughs> um, one thing too, just kind of, and you mentioned a bit earlier with the bikers. Uh, so I know a lot of people attribute, I want to say a lot of crime to them. Uh, and you know, the power of the patch and the, it's got a lot of, um, it brings with it like a lot of fear and intimidation when people are wearing that. But what I'm wondering is like they've, they're spread worldwide. They're known very well. Uh, but how come they're allowed to spread or do you know of a reason why they're allowed to spread when you have people like cartels, like triads, you got these organizations that as far as I understand are much bigger more well-funded, like they're, they're basically small governments. They have a GDP with how much money they bring in. So where do the Hells Angels kind of fall in the whole scheme of things? Are they kind of like a middle tier group? They're used by these bigger ones. Um, I just find it interesting that they're allowed to spread everywhere where you have very established cartels already. Well, I, I don't think as far as a, a drug trafficking threat, the, the Hells Angels are, are anywhere near even, even the middle tier, uh, mm. at, at least in the United States. I think we've decimated the Hells Angels to the point where, where they're really nothing but low-level, retail-level distributors. Um, why they're allowed to flourish? I, I think the Hells Angels over time have learned not to, uh, to proclaim themselves to anyone that they're criminal organizations. They're, they're uh, social yeah. organizations, <laughs> ride motorcycles kind of thing. That's their shtick. But uh, um, certainly the... Uh, as I said, the Hells Angels have been decimated thanks to relentless law enforcement uh, case building against them here in the U.S. Um, I, I think to a, um, a, a much larger degree in Canada and certainly some of the Western European countries, uh, they've continued to be allowed to flourish uh, at the retail level uh, drug distribution. Mm -hmm. But uh, for the longest time in America and uh, Canada, the, the Hells Angels and, and other outlaw motorcycle gangs controlled meth production um, and distribution. Um, in about 2005, thanks to the Combat Methamphetamine Act in, in the U.S. that Congress passed, where we really uh, effectively constricted precursor chemical flows, namely pseudoephedrine, uh, to distribution in the U.S., uh, meth production shifted into Mexico. Uh, and now what you have is uh, wholesale level uh, production distribution is controlled entirely by Mexican drug cartels. And Hells Angels are just like any other uh, gang mm -hmm. inside the U.S. Uh, buying from them to conduct retail level sales. So uh, okay. they're still a threat. Uh, they certainly still engage in, in gambling, prostitution, uh, organized violence of every kind. Uh, they certainly certainly deserve to continue to be watched as an organized crime uh, organization. But uh, in terms of global drug trafficking and, and the amount of volume and threat that they pose to North America, they're a shell of what they used to be. Yeah. Well, so um, kind of going back to your career here, you were in Brownsville. Um, can you take us a bit more through where you go from there? Uh, from there, I get transferred to Washington, D.C., uh, where I was assigned to first our South America section uh, as a what we call a staff coordinator. Uh, uh, shortly thereafter, I ended up getting promoted to be the deputy chief of, of all of international operations for DEA. Wonderful position, enabled me to see drug trafficking from a global perspective, not just 
the different uh, threats that uh, the rest of the globe presented to the U.S., but certainly the individual countries that had um, uh, their own challenges relative to organized crime, drug threats, both in production, transshipment, uh, and, and consumption. Well, and that kind of leads to maybe one question I was going to ask. Um, I think it's a good spot to ask is, is there anyone else in the world, in any of these other countries, that has someone that does the work the DEA does that's very similar? Or is the DEA very unique from your perspective? No, I, there's a number of countries out there that have uh, their own DEA. In fact, uh, Chile uh, in South America mm. named their total drug organization police uh, DEA after us years ago. Um, but uh, depending on the, the political makeup of the country, how they view drugs as a yeah. separate threat to, to, to form their own anti-drug police, uh, but certainly throughout South America, especially in the Andean countries, uh, Mexico even, uh, they've formed their own totally specific counter-drug police. Um, and for a reason, it's, it, it's necessary. Drug trafficking yeah. is, a, is a very specific subset of, of law enforcement in general, requiring some very specific kinds of, of information, um, not just in criminal investigative um, objectives, but, you know, chemistry and, and money laundering, all of the ancillary issues that uh, drug trafficking uh, produces. So uh, when you're in charge of the whole thing and you got kind of the big picture going on, is that when, what year would that have been? Uh, that was uh, in uh, 2000, uh, I'm sorry, 1999 to 2001. Um, okay. Right before I ended up going to, uh, had a bright idea of, of moving my entire family to Pakistan in 2001. <laughs> so that was one of the points I was going to uh, ask about because I thought, I mean, especially given 9-11 and the timing of moving to Pakistan, I kind of want to spend a few minutes on that and see, you know, what that experience was like and if you could kind of tell us what's going on in the world and, and your involvement with the stuff in Pakistan. Well, uh, uh, Pakistan at the time was one of the three heroin source regions of the world, Southwest Asian heroin, principally coming out of Pakistan and Afghanistan. Um, I took a promotion going to Pakistan, uh, Islamabad, uh, as sort of the regional supervisor for uh, Central Asia and, and parts of the Middle East, trying to stem some of the flow of Southwest Asian heroin uh, coming out of that part of the world into the U.S., um, as you can imagine, 9-11 didn't just change the world. It completely refocused mine. Mm -hmm. Because at the time, um, the only U.S. government agency that had any human intelligence inside Afghanistan next door, uh, and, and by the way, we're talking about the Taliban government that, that owned that country at that time, um, was DEA. So we were uniquely poised to actually provide some, some truly outside and outsize intelligence on uh, what was going on inside Afghanistan relative to the warlords and and uh, the narco terrorists um, making money from the heroin trade and 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 certainly forwarding their terrorist objectives uh, along with Al Qaeda at the time. Uh, in fact, in uh, December of two thousand one, when when war broke out, um, I was actually asked to be among the first group of civilians to, to fly into Kabul. 
uh, and reestablish our U.S. embassy there in the, in the capital city. An embassy, by the way, that had been closed since the 1979 Soviet Union invasion of Afghanistan. How's that for the arc of history? <laughs> so uh, that must have been a pretty rundown, pretty rundown building. <laughs> you have to revamp it. Uh, well, it was not just run down. It was it, it was completely abandoned. It bombed out. The windows were shot out. Uh, and, and I tell the story occasionally that, um, you know, for over 20 years, birds had been nesting in the ceiling, the, the rafters of the old embassy building there, depositing their mess all mm-hmm. over the floor. Um, and and that was the floor, along with all of my new best friends from the U.S. Marine Corps, slept on every night. And and uh, the Marines and I, we made a kind of an important discovery. We we discovered what that white stuff and bird poop is. And, and I always ask the question, uh, do you know what that is? And the answer is, turns out that's bird shit too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I tell that story just to illustrate the point that sometimes things are exactly as they seem uh, relative to the black and white, right mm-hmm. and wrong, good and evil. And certainly that's the case with drug trafficking and abuse. But uh, Well, when you land in, and you're in Pakistan, is it the most secure area that you can be in? Like, is it pretty safe, relatively speaking? Or are you going into these places thinking like, you know, I might have to pick up a rifle at some point and kind of get to business here? Well, we we were armed at the time. Uh, when 9-11 broke out, our families were evacuated. Um, mm. and, and certainly uh, it turned out to sort of be a disaster personal, personally, family-wise. But uh, professionally, I was in the middle of history at the time. So was it dangerous? Potentially, yes. Uh, we actually had uh, a few months after 9-11 happened, a suicide bomber walk into the uh, Protestant International Church in Islamabad, mostly foreigners, um, blew, blew himself up with a suicide bomb, killed uh, a number of Americans uh, and, and I'm certain other foreign dignitaries as well. Um, so yeah, could it be dangerous? Sure. Um, Pakistan DEA presence today is uh, is not what it used to be. It's still quite dangerous, uh, but but at the time, you know, we uh, we were trying to uh, control information uh, inside Afghanistan next door uh, and feed it to the intelligence community, U.S. military, uh, and and a lot of military ops against uh, warlords. And, and by the way, the the warlords over there. Are essentially the drug traffickers, the, the Taliban, they're all wrapped up into one, um, made some pretty significant um, uh, gains relative to the rule of law in Afghanistan at the time. Wow. So um, how long did you spend in that area of the world? Uh, it turned out to be about a year and a half before I finally came out, went to back to headquarters for a short time, and then I ended up coming to Dallas, Texas, um, where... Once again, uh, sort of the middle of, middle of history as we started to see the blossoming of uh, the Zetas drug cartel, mm-hmm. uh, which really is the first iteration of, of narco-terrorism, in my opinion, coming out of Mexico, uh, dominate the cocaine trade, uh, meth, marijuana, heroin, you name it, uh, coming into the, the, the Texas region and increasingly uh, the rest of the country. So... Um, spent a number of years uh, as a sort of a mid-level supervisor in, in Dallas, Texas, um, working with some some great local and state investigators in uh, in this state. Uh, in 2011, I uh, got promoted to 
the head of our global aviation division, also based here in the Dallas, Texas area, uh, which essentially uh, is responsible for aerial surveillance, mostly as well as extraditions of international defendants, uh, movement of, of equipment and personnel uh, throughout the country and the world. Um, wonderful job, great professionals that, uh, and, and probably not well known, but the pilots that work for DEA are not just pilots, they're also special agents. Um, because as, uh, as we used to say, uh, there's nobody that's going to take better care of a surveillance operation mm-hmm. than the undercover agents on the ground than a fellow special agent up in the air. So, so uh, is the DEA sending people to like flight school or you just kind of recruit out the, the Air Force? Uh, a little of both. Yeah, yeah. we actually uh, do some training of our own folks uh, uh, in a variety of different aircraft platforms. Okay. But uh, most of the pilots actually have a former military background, which uh, certainly reduces the uh, the level of training needed to bring somebody up to speed. Yeah. So, so where do you go? And from certainly, there? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, well, I actually, from there, I retired at the end of 2015 mm-hmm. uh, and I was selected um, for the head of the Midwest HIDA, the High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area Program, which is essentially it's a law enforcement grant program under the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, ONDCP. Um, uh, that's essentially our drug czar's office uh, in, in Washington, which uh, has been a cabinet level agency for, for many years. So uh, had drug control task forces that we supported throughout seven states across the Midwest, um, had, a, had a great relationship with law enforcement at every level throughout the Midwest doing some great cases. And, and as I used to say, you know, cases in the Midwest, I'm, I'm sure just like uh, a place like Edmonton, Canada, don't always have the largest seizures. They don't mm-hmm. always have the sexiest of cases. But you know what? In terms of uh, responsiveness to the drug threat, innovation, imagination uh, of our criminal investigators in the Midwest, I don't think anybody did it better. One question I wanted to ask on that was uh, just on the breakdown geographically of the U.S. So you often hear Midwest uh, is one of the terms used. Is the is the U.S kind of broken down maybe when it comes to drug trafficking into like a East and West coast and then you have Midwest. Is there something unique about that? Or um, is this just like general terminology? I think general terminology and, and certainly every agency has got different uh, divisions or offices, what they consider Midwest or, or West or East or Northeast. Um, but for ONDCP, uh, the Midwest really was was more of a political formation of uh, of, mm. of sort of concentrating grant programs to certain geographic regions. So, uh, okay, I was thinking like maybe if there was um, some sort of you know a very different economic situation, Midwest maybe generally poorer. It's like a you know mostly farming communities, but then you get to the coast and it's like there's tons of money out there and all the big schools, so they have. Uh, even different types of drugs between what you might see on the coast, then you go to the Midwest, maybe it's more the hard stuff, the dirtier drugs. You know what? I, I don't think the Midwest has any special significance in terms of uh, mm. the drug threat compared yeah. to anybody else. Certainly there are different uh, microclimates or, or different uh, uh, mini drug threats uh, pursuant to the area. But Chicago, for instance, 
probably the uh, third or fourth largest city in the U.S. is considered in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the one of the biggest uh, early fentanyl cases to come out of the U.S. was uh, was conducted in Fargo, North Dakota. Oh, really? Against what was initially uh, sort of an internet fentanyl distribution ring uh, in that part of the country that thanks to aggressive law enforcement and prosecution by, uh, uh, by the North Dakota state authorities and with some assistance from DEA and HSI, um, sort of kept working the case further and further upstream. Uh, and it was actually Far- Fargo, North Dakota, that did the first indictment of a Chinese uh, fentanyl uh, lab operator in the country. Wow. Now, we'll probably never see him. I don't think China's ever going to cough him up. Uh, um, relative to our extradition request. But uh, once again, a tremendous uh, international drug case worked in the Midwest. And, and you know, there's, there's a lot of folks that use the term border city. I, I don't think there's such a thing anymore. You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Fargo became a, a border city at that time. We've got, we've got major cartel emissaries working in St. Louis or probably even Edmonton, Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, that that aren't three, four, or five rungs below cartel leadership. They're they're one or two removed from cartel leadership back in Culiacan, Sinaloa, or Michoacan, or or Monterey, Mexico, with the Gulf Cartel. Um, you know, the, uh, it's uh, Homeland Security uh, had had recently said that uh, at least in the U.S., the various Mexican cartels have a presence in over three thousand American cities and towns. Wow. They're here solely to sell dope to Americans and Canadians in your case. Yeah. Um, now I, I can think of no greater modern example of Cicero's warning to his fellow Romans about allowing an enemy within the gates than that. Well, I know for a fact, like you, you're hundred percent correct. We have cartel dope that makes its way up here. We have stuff that comes from China. We have stuff from the middle East. So everybody's involved in it's a very globalized world. Like the, there are no more borders, essentially, when it comes to this stuff. You know, I've always said there is no more globalized industry than the dope trade. Yeah. And that's, that's continuing to increase as, uh, as the world gets smaller, if you will, uh, especially in terms of, of uh, the, the rise in synthetics. You know, it's no longer necessary to grow large plots of, of drugs like opium uh, in a country and convert it to heroin. You can, you can make fentanyl essentially anywhere. You can make meth anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why we're starting to, uh, or, or continuing to see the rise of synthetics, uh, throughout the world. Well, maybe that brings me to, um, one of the topics we were going to get onto was the war on drugs. So been, I mean, I've heard this term or this, um, idea throughout my whole life. Can you kind of give me, um, your thoughts on it after all these years? and maybe some of the uh, media narratives on it or some of the critics, you know, what you've heard from them and, and your thoughts on their, their opinions? It would be my pleasure. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think there's no more uh, misunderstood and vilified term out there than, than the war on drugs. Um, the term does, in fact, come from Richard Nixon in 1971 uh, when he declared his war on drugs, but it was not meant to be a literal war. It was uh, designed to be a metaphorical call to arms, uh, the moral equivalent of war. In exactly, by the way, the same way that his predecessor, Lyndon Johnson, had done with his war on poverty, or Jimmy Carter had subsequently done with his war on cancer. And 
by the way, have we won those two other wars yet? No. Um, but it's it's completely uh, either forgotten or not known today that in 1971, President Nixon used as his principal weapon in his war on drugs, drug treatment. The president increased uh, funding for treatment and prevention programs eightfold mm-hmm. within two years, consuming two-thirds of the entire drug control budget and dwarfing the monies allocated to the supply side or enforcement programs across the federal government. But President Nixon and the nation uh, would actually come to learn the limitations of government's ability to affect behavior solely through compassionate or therapeutic means. Uh, Because um, we we came to find out that uh, without the ability to compel drug addicts into long-term treatment, uh, initial drug treatment failed 90 to 95% of the time. By the way, you fast forward to today, initial drug treatment fails 90 to 95% of the time. That's why it's called a chronic relapsing condition. It, Boston University did a study here a while back that showed that the mean number of drug treatment episodes was 6.9 times over a six and a half year period, but four finally takes effect. And that doesn't even include the number of addicts who died along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so too, drug prevention programs, uh, after long-term study, we realized that unless we simultaneously reduce drug availability on our streets, drug supply, most drug prevention programs turn out to be wholly ineffective. Uh, what did make a difference in Nixon's day was targeting the Corsican, excuse me, the Corsican Italian mafia supplying the vast majority of heroin to Americans at that time known as the French Connection. It was law enforcement that staunched this nation's first opioid epidemic. Mm-hmm. And it would be law enforcement that would do it again and again against future drug threats, future transnational criminal organizations. And I, I always make this point to my law enforcement audiences that uh, given the limitations, the known limitations of drug treatment and prevention programs, law enforcement strategically may in fact be the most effective and the most compassionate drug treatment and prevention program available to us today. Well, you even see that with frontline officers. I think there's a narrative out there that they are, I don't know, just like grabbing people off the street and throwing them in a cell and, and leaving them there. Uh, when in fact we do, uh, like patrol officers stuff, they do a lot of transports for people. They take them to the hospital. They take them to the drug treatment places, to the shelters where they can get that help. Um, so I think a lot of the, the view of law enforcement has been skewed, whether that's by media or politicians. I, I, I totally agree. I think it's been skewed purposefully by the, by the left wing, by, by liberals who, who want to talk about the drug war. Uh, as as entirely the enforcement apparatus, when in fact we know that it also includes treatment and prevention programs, the the so called three pillars of the three legged stool. Mm. Um, but but we're made to believe that our prisons and our jails are filled with mere drug users. Mm-hmm. You know that mass incarceration has been spawned by the drug war. These aren't just misguided notions; they're dangerous lies. And and here's a, a stat that uh, Americans need to understand that. On any given day in our country, there are roughly 1.4 million people behind bars in our various state prisons throughout the country. And of that total, according to the U.S. Department of Justice in 2019, less than 15% are there for drug offenses. But that's really not the important uh, statistic there. 
The other side of that's what's important. 85% of our state inmates are there for rape, robbery, murder, grand larceny, aggravated assault. Our prisons are not filled with mere drug users. Mm-hmm. They're not, not even filled with drug traffickers. They're filled with violent criminals and serial thieves. And they are exactly where they need to be if we care anything at all about the protection of our society. Well, and you know what, um, you bring up a good point there too. One of the things that I've never quite understood is when you hear that like drug uh, trafficking or, you know, just drug offenses in general are a nonviolent crime. But, and again, maybe this will speak to kind of the nexus of the drugs and crimes, but um, uh, one of the quotes that I, you had in a paper I was reading, and it was talking about how um, drug trafficking is inherently violent and most, one of the most murderous crimes in the U.S., I would say that's probably the same here, but we don't really keep that many uh, statistics. But drug trafficking itself, um, it invites that type of crime. And uh, the violence, you need violence to protect your your supply, to protect your logistics, to even right down to the dealers out there doing the dial-a-dope. Um, they carry bear spray and knives, if not guns on them now. So, you know, the drug trafficking brings the violence with it. Well, that's true to a certain degree, but there's actually three levels of, uh, three types of, of crime that we associate with, with illegal drugs. Mm. The first is the psychopharmacological, which uh, causes people to do stupid or illegal activities uh, simply because they're on drugs. And clearly alcohol falls into that category as well. The second is the economic model, which argues that people commit crime to be able to buy dope or to lead some drug-infused lifestyle absent the responsibilities of normal citizenship. And the third is the systemic model, which argues that uh, given their illegality, there's a, an inherent level of violent criminal activity that accompanies uh, illegal drug trafficking and use. Um, it is that third model that is constantly cited by, by the left as the entirety of the drug problem, when in fact, the bigger piece of that are the first two, the psychopharmacological and the economic. Um, so, uh, um, you know, Clearly, we've got we've got bigger issues than than just the fact that uh, uh, drugs are illegal. Um, actually, the the pharmaceutical explosion of, of prescription pain pills in our country explodes the myth that it's been the illegality of drugs or the war on drugs that's been the problem. Mm-hmm. Prescription pain pills uh, pushed out by the ton by the American pharmaceutical industry uh, beginning at about 1996. Uh, not only has killed over 500,000 Americans since 1999, directly, not indirectly causing them to transition to heroin or fentanyl, but directly. Um, the, the, uh, uh, they're, they're completely legal, taxed, regulated, yet still highly abused. The prescription pain pill phenomenon approves the point that every drug epidemic is actually about two things, drug availability and drug acceptability. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, th- that's the point that, that I think most citizens have to understand. That the, the drug violence in this country is not just driven by their illegality. Uh, in fact, that quote that you, you just mentioned comes from uh, the former drug czar of the U.S. who, who said that, especially right now, we've, we've got 110,000 Americans dying of drug overdoses every year and continuing to rise. That's, that's over 300 every single day. 
Yeah. Uh, so he was right when he said that that drug trafficking is actually the most murderous criminal activity in the history of America. Well, um, kind of on that point, you're saying the there's the uh, availability and the acceptability. One of the things I was going to ask was on the acceptability part, um, because I think, uh, and you even talk about this in one of the addresses you did, uh, where basically we want to look to stigmatize the decision to use drugs, but not the receiving of treatment. So can you talk a little bit about that and maybe how you might do that? Because he kind of compared it to the tobacco industry. Well, uh, uh, you know, I think we're made to believe that uh, we, we, we must not, we cannot stigmatize those who are addicted to drugs and, and, and need our help. Um, I don't believe anyone, public or private, actually targets for abuse those who willingly step forward seeking help for their demons. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but since we know that the vast majority of drug, in fact, nearly all drug addiction starts as recreational drug taking, I think as a culture, as a society, that's exactly what we need to stigmatize, mm-hmm. uh, at, at least every bit as much as we've done with tobacco. We have to stigmatize the 15-year-old boy who thinks he's cool smoking weed after school with his buddies, the college girl who thinks she's sophisticated ordering fentanyl pills from the dark web or Snapchat and, and then paying, it, paying for it with some virtual currency like Zcash or, or Bitcoin. Uh, and most of all, in my opinion, I think we need to stigmatize those social, political, and media influences that normalize and glamorize drug use. Um, one, of the, one of the most dangerous industries, uh, uh, and I, maybe I shouldn't uh, lump them all together, but um, the, uh, the entertainment industry today is, is horrible at glamorizing drug use. Yeah. Um, and worst of all is the music industry. Yeah. On, on any given day right now, the, the average American adolescent listens to about 2.4 hours of music every single day. And according to one study, uh, during that period of time, he or she hears 84 explicit references to substance use, either neutral or pro. Uh, And over the course of a year in their private iPod worlds or through their earbuds, that's that's about 10,000 references that constantly pound into their head. And we think we're going to push back on that with uh, one or two red ribbon campaigns or events in in our schools every, uh, every year. Uh, we're simply being outgunned by our own culture every day. Well, 100%. And the pop culture is what's in the kids' faces all day. That's what they see. That's what they hear. Um, those people, uh, I guess, as you as the kids kind of grow up and move into their teens, the parents are less involved. The kids aren't don't want to be around their parents as, uh, as much. You know, who's getting more of that face time with these young, forming minds, right? Um, And one of the things that I thought you brought up here too on the availability side, that was uh, a really good point was that the availability is the one factor that the government probably has the most control over. So instead of focusing so much on the stigma and like you're saying, a lot of these different types of campaigns, um, the government should maybe be focused a little more on the availability. So again, that's the law enforcement having certain laws that um, allow you to maybe stem things before they even enter the country. So can you talk a little bit about that pillar and your thoughts around the availability? Well, let me, let me say what I uh, uh, alluded to earlier about the, the, the three pillars of the three-legged stool. We absolutely need treatment and prevention, but 
uh, there are a whole number and facets of, of society engaged in the treatment and prevention realms. But there's only one entity that can affect drug availability, and that's law enforcement uh, and government. So, so clearly, uh, they've got ownership of that complete piece. Now, uh, we, we currently spend about half of our total drug control budget, uh, roughly about $40 billion a year, just for drug treatment. Um, and, and that also includes uh, private sectors and personal insurance, out-of-pocket expenses for people uh, seeking drug treatment. All that's necessary, but but we cannot solve this problem with with just continuing to to try to treat the downstream repercussions of, of drug use and trafficking, i.e., drug treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, as as I just said earlier, uh, a lot of our drug addicts today, especially in the fentanyl crisis, will end up dying before drug treatment actually takes effect. It's it's not as compassionate as people think it is. Uh, we absolutely have to do more to, to make drugs less available, um, and reducing drug supply on our streets, uh, is, is the one thing that can really allow drug treatment and prevention to gain traction, uh, in our communities. So, um, you know what, once again, a lot of people think that the war on drugs is engaged against their own citizens. It's filling our jails and prisons with mere drug users. Nothing could be further than the truth. Um, so um, society at some point has to draw a line with what we don't find acceptable relative to uh, making drugs available to uh, young children, mm-hmm. to uh, anybody and everybody who wants to buy them in any amount. Um, it, it, there always has to be some levels of controls, uh, as we see even with, with legal drugs. Um, legalization is not the answer. Well, and that brings me right to uh, the next thing I was going to ask about. And I guess maybe the third pillar is leadership. And um, maybe we can kind of segue that also into the legalization debate. So um, one of the things that I always found interesting was the leaders, the politicians, the decision makers, always kind of vilifying this war on drugs. But now we're kind of moving to a, um, a space where we're legalizing things. And I don't know if this is occurring in the the US, but up here in Canada, in Vancouver, they are, uh, people are allowed to possess now two and a half grams of like meth, heroin, cannabis, like they've kind of just put everything in together and said, as long as you have this amount or less, you know, police can't seize it, they won't charge you, you can't be arrested. Um, What are your thoughts on this whole I'll say maybe we'll start with the leadership aspect where they might've gone wrong. And then we're kind of coming down to this legalization idea. So can you kind of talk about that aspect? Well, I, I think everywhere it's been tried in, in uh, the Netherlands is one example, Portugal is another uh, where, where they have legalized uh, or at least decriminalized uh, supposed personal use amounts of, of drugs. Um, you know, they, they constantly talk about the successes of, of, of the heroin program over there where they provide heroin to addicts. And, uh, but heroin is not their big issue over there in, in Europe anymore. It's, uh, it's cocaine and, and methamphetamine is growing fast. Um, so thanks to the legalization uh, environment uh, in, in places like Western Europe, a lot of people don't realize the Mexican cartels today are actually manufacturing methamphetamine in Western Europe. Uh, 32 meth labs were discovered in the Netherlands in 2020, each one of them 
owned and operated by a Mexican cartel. So um, relative to, to, to sort of the um, uh, laissez-faire attitude of, of drugs in the Netherlands, I, I think the Dutch have, have started to wake up and realize that their, their uh, lax policies have actually encouraged organized crime to move into to, to their country. Uh, and, and what used to be a beautiful city, Amsterdam, has uh, been described by one recent observer as uh, the most violent and squalid city in Europe. Really? Uh, drugs brought that on. Um, so once again, the options relative to drugs are not between uh, throwing drug users in jail. We, we don't do that. I don't know of any country in the world that does that just because they're drug users uh, that need help. Um or complete legalization. There, there are a myriad number of steps uh, in between that, that can happen. Uh, you may want to talk about uh, marijuana separately, but you know what we're finding in California is that marijuana legalization has ushered in a, a new wild west. It, it has not made um, California safer, better, mm-hmm. more free. Um, yeah, we, we've got 90% of the marijuana grows in California today are actually owned by organized crime, where they come in and, and uh, uh, set up what we call trespass grows uh, in national forests, state parks, private property, fouling the environment in every way. Uh, 90% of all the marijuana coming out of California today uh, is grown by organized crime in trespass grows, um, to the point where we have commercial legal entities leaving the state in droves simply because they can't compete with the black market. Yeah. Uh, a black market, by the way, that's also involved in cocaine, meth, heroin, fentanyl, you name it. Um, so for anyone paying attention to, to look at drug legalization as the answer, once again, uh, just trying to, to, to diminish that systemic problem of drugs and crime ignores the other two problems uh, that come with uh, expanded drug use. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I think um, at least when you see things in the media, I want to say a lot of the narrative gets kind of lost in just this giant sea of people saying all kinds of things, but um, they talk about it like legalization is like the end all be all, the one solution where you don't see much writing on um, saying, hey, we need a whole host of things. We need a law enforcement aspect. We need treatment aspect. Like we need to do all of these things. But usually whatever article I've managed to ever find um, it always just talks about like one thing, like that's the solution. So, um, I think that's kind of dangerous. It's, and it's, it's repeating a lot of the mistakes of the past. Like you're saying, going back to Nixon, you have seen a lot of these things have been tried already. And now we're kind of going back to them saying, Hey, let's try this. It's like, well, we have a, a whole bunch of history to refer to. Like, why is nobody talking about this? <laughs> Well, most of the arguments from the left really are, are set up against straw man arguments that that is not true. It's not the case anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, law enforcement's been saying for decades now that we're not going to be able to tr- uh, to arrest or police our way out of the drug issue. That's absolutely true. But um, we're also not going to be able to treat or prevent our way out either. All three legs of that three-legged stool are are necessary. Yeah, and and I. As I always say, the uh, uh, all of us run the risk of falling into Maslow's trap, where he warned that if a hammer is your preferred tool, then every problem looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. So, 
the humility that our drug law enforcers have had to accept concerning their complete uh, inability to eradicate the problem alone must also be accepted by those engaged in the treatment and prevention realms. Yes. Um, you know, uh, whether drugs are legal, as in the case of prescription pain pills, or illegal, which uh, we've talked about a host of them already, um, it, it's absolutely true, according to several studies, that uh, drugs drive upwards as much as two-thirds of all of our crime in society. Mm-hmm. Um, two-thirds. And, and what's more, 40% of, of those who get arrested for drug trafficking are also arrested with, with a weapon. 40% of our homicides in this country are connected to the drug trade somehow. So uh, much of that is not due to that systemic problem. It's due to the fact that people just want to lead a drug-induced lifestyle uh, and, and have complete unimpeded liberty. Um, and one more article about le- or a uh, point about legalization. Um, it's been estimated that 80% of our homeless people across the country today, and I know Canada's got an issue with that as well, mm-hmm. um, are addicted to opioids. Uh, the other 20, 20% probably to meth, coke, weed, alcohol, marijuana, or some combination thereof. Um, in Los Angeles County alone, we now have 65,000 homeless people clustered in squalid and filthy tent cities ushering in diseases not seen since medieval times, typhus, leprosy, wow. uh, bubonic plague, not to mention skyrocketing rates of crime for, for, um, for miles surrounding these places. Uh, it's been said that the average heavy opioid user consumes more than $1,800 a month buying his drugs. So using this as our baseline, we can predict out that uh, the various Mexican cartels earn as much as $2 billion a year just supplying fentanyl. Mm-hmm to the various homeless populations up and down the West Coast, from San Diego to Vancouver. Um, now, it's, uh, it's been said that uh, uh, a lot of our city leaders in these places are paralyzed with, with indecision on what to do. No, in, in my opinion, they're paralyzed with their own tolerance. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only answer thus far has just to, been to pass out more and more in the lock zone, more and more government programs. Um, in fact, the former governor of Maine Paul LePage, in my opinion, was absolutely right when he said that naloxone doesn't really save lives. It merely extends them until the next overdose. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think in some of these homeless camps where we have de facto legalized drug use, um, that's that's truly the case. Um, So there's two things I want to get to before the end of our time. One was just talking a bit more about the cartels and then uh, also some of the areas for addressing. drugs. Can you just talk a bit about the cartels and the state of them today? Um, kind of their uh, integration with all these outside people. So we see they are connected to China. There's a lot of cooperation between all these very big organizations. Sometimes I know just from my own experience, there can be issues among law enforcement trying to cooperate and share information. So do you see like a growing trend of the bad guys getting along, pooling resources, starting to work together to kind of get into countries. And, it, and where does, where's the cartel in all this? Uh, short answer to that is yes. Um, yeah. Now, 
given some of my background, especially in, uh, in, in Pakistan and Afghanistan, I, I don't pretend to be an expert on terrorism per se, but, but I do have a little experience where, where drugs and terrorism have, have intersected. Um, I, I think one of the, the growing threats that we face, especially the Mexican variety, is, is that blend of drug trafficking and international terrorism we now call narco-terrorism. Um, and let me first just say, by, uh, if you take a look at the uh, methods and the tactics of both terrorist groups and, and drug traffickers, they're remarkably similar. The only difference really is just a matter of degree. Terrorists look to overthrow the entire existing political order and replace it with some form of communism or socialism or perhaps an Islamic caliphate. Um, drug traffickers, not so much. They only look to degrade and erode those government forces that oppose them usually the police, so they can continue to use the weakened husk of the nation state to make money from the backs of addiction. They're both single-minded, zealous, highly ethnocentric, and they're shockingly violent. Um, both terrorists and traffickers thrive where uh, political and judicial institutions are weak. Um, they depend on what we call shadow facilitators, those uh, support players that provide chemicals or weapons or uh, money laundering services, for instance. Um, and whether we like it or not, both the terrorists and the traffickers take our forgiving multiculturalism and our moral and cultural relativism as weakness. Mm -hmm. um, so you look at the blend that's currently happening today in Mexico, um, been happening for quite some time. In fact, uh, the, the genesis of the narco-terrorism phenomenon in Mexico actually started in 1999 when the, the Mexican government created the, the Gafis unit, the Air Mobile Special Forces Group. Um, and, and that was 350 men that the finest that the Mexican military had to offer, given the best weapons, the best training, uh, to go after the heart of the various cartels. Back in 1999, almost immediately, one of the subunits of the Gafis, the Z unit, and Zeta is simply the letter Z in Spanish, mm. defected en masse to go to work as the private mercenary army of the Gulf cartel. With them, they took their training, their tactics, their weapons. And they began incorporating terroristic acts that they picked up from watching videos posted by Al-Qaeda and uh, Taliban out of Pakistan and Afghanistan at the time. So uh, they started beheading rival traffickers. Uh, that led to sort of an escalating game of quid pro quo from other cartels um, to, to where they pretty much all entered that slippery slope of, of what we call terrorist tactics. Um, and, and, and all of the cartels, just like the terrorists, actually practice terrorist and ruthless kinds of tactics to achieve two goals. First, quite obviously, is to cow and crush any opposition, be it the public, the government, or rival traffickers. Secondly, maybe even more importantly, it tends to intensify and invigorate faith among their members. We've actually had just a a handful of uh, Mexican sicarios or hitmen who have been arrested and ended up cooperating with U.S. authorities talk about how absolutely exhilarating it is to, to kill on behalf of your organization, your team, to cut somebody's heart out, to skin somebody alive. Hmm. Um, and, and I would remind folks that uh, terrorism is not a specific entity or a particular ideology. It's a tactic. And it's a tactic being employed every single day so the Mexican cartels can uh, move more dope and commit more organized crime. Um, now, um, 
the Zetas, for the most part, are kind of a shell of what they used to be, but those same tactics are, are still in use by all of the Mexican cartels across the country. And increasingly, the violence uh, associated between those, those groups are not just about controlling corridors or plazas uh, into the U.S., into North America. Uh, increasingly, there are, uh, there are manifestations of frictions that happen between uh, rival trafficking groups in uh, places like Western Europe, in places like Asia for the acquisition of precursor chemicals, uh, Africa, for instance, where they're bouncing loads of cocaine into West Africa into Western Europe. Hmm. Um, and, and not to mention the fact that we also have increasing amounts of drug distribution and use inside Mexico. Um, a lot of people don't realize that methamphetamine use in, in Mexico has quintupled in the last decade, um, driving much of the violence in that country. So uh, this is not just, once again, a, a first world problem. It's, it's affecting everybody. Um, the Mexican cartels, especially as they transition from um, uh, some of their traditional drugs into methamphetamine and certainly fentanyl today, um, they're not going to give up these, these uh, uh, profits quite easily. Um, fentanyl is here to stay. There is simply no better low-volume, high-value product, as well as being highly addictive, than fentanyl. Um, now, uh, the, you talk about international cooperation among uh, criminal organizations. Absolutely. The Mexicans have cooperated with uh, gangs and, and local organized crime in other parts of the world in order to make both of them stronger. Mm -hmm. Uh, in, in Ecuador, for instance, uh, the, the national gang there are the Choneros, and, and there are certain numbers of other smaller gangs that have allied with the uh, Jalisco cartel, uh, as the Choneros uh, are allied with the Sinaloa to be able to, to move dope into Mexico, mainly cocaine. So those, those frictions have caused such a national emergency that uh, the, the president of, of Ecuador himself has declared such a state of emergency. Um, in, in Asia, for instance, the, uh, and, and we're really talking about on the international scene, the two big kids on a block, which are the Sinaloa and the new generation Jalisco cartel, the CJNG. Mm -hmm. um, and, and these frictions uh, occur throughout the world. And in Asia, uh, both groups have allied with the uh, Chinese triads, namely the Sunyi On and the 14K triads for the acquisition of precursor chemicals. In fact, it was Chapo Guzman, who had the vision of, of first establishing relations with uh, the Chinese triads, um, not just to move cocaine into the uh, incredibly profitable Asian markets, but uh, to acquire chemicals for methamphetamine and fentanyl. Uh, the Wall Street Journal actually did a, a recent uh, uh, article talking about how uh, you can take about $800 in precursor chemicals, namely the uh, uh, fentanyl precursor of NPP and turn that into about $800,000 in profit by converting it to pills on the retail market. Wow. That's a profit potential of 1,000 times the original investment. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, this is profitable not just for the Mexican cartels, but also for, for the Chinese triads. Um, the relationships with so many of the uh, dictators and warlords and, and organized crime figures in West Africa 
is also increasing uh, tremendously. Uh, it's a little known fact that the highest per capita crack cocaine addiction rate in the world right now is in the tiny West African nation of Guinea-Bissau, where their corrupt leaders have taken more uh, payment from the various cartels to move cocaine through West Africa into Western Europe, uh, taking payment and product versus money, where they in turn sell cocaine to their own citizens. Um, it's truly, in my opinion, evil when you uh, chemically enslave your own people uh, with a drug that they never knew a generation ago. So when uh... Uh, so I was just going to say, and, and, and certainly uh, through Central America, the cocaine trafficking routes um, ha has done uh, a, a tremendous amount of damage uh, relative to the frictions and, and the gang warfare and the violence uh, associated with uh, what's been called sort of a bipolar world now with the two cartels uh, in, in Central America. So um, we talked earlier about globalization being the key. Globalization will continue. Uh, and, and not just in terms of, of Mexican cartels cooperating with uh, foreign governments, foreign organized crime, uh, even terrorist organizations throughout the world. But, but we're also seeing uh, sort of a globalized model being implemented at the very localized level. And in and, and that, I'm talking about people like George Soros uh, trying to undermine society by funding far left uh, district attorneys and other local politicians that, that don't serve the interests of justice. They serve the interests of, of, of criminals mm. um, and, of, and of chaos. Uh, George Soros has funded um, over the course of, of the last 10 years or so uh, with about $40 million dollars leading to the election of 75 different district attorneys across the United States, our big cities, uh, that roughly represent about one-fifth of our total population in the U.S. So you talk about undermining law enforcement. Uh, the, the cops can't do anything unless they get their arrestees prosecuted, mm -hmm. incarcerated, and taken off the streets. Uh, we're increasingly hesitant to do that because I, I guess we find it repugnant to, uh, to actually be mean to people even people that are uh, looking to prey upon our fellow citizens. Yeah. Well, you're not wrong. I've had a lot of people on to talk about bail reform and just the revolving door. That is the justice system it is a massive, massive issue right now. Um, that kind of brings us on to like, what are some of the uh, areas to address some of the solutions? And I did want to kind of ask like, is maybe one of the solutions to look at these groups as terrorist organizations, or can they be treated as terrorist organizations? Uh, I think they can, and, and I'll talk about it in, in point number four, but, but mm -hmm. I believe there are four broad areas that we need to, uh, to engage in, uh, not just as, uh, as nations, but as uh, cultures and societies to address the, the, the drug threat, to address the, the fact that we've got uh, 300 of, of my fellow citizens dying every single day from, from illegal drugs. Uh, the first is to re-educate. Uh, I, I personally believe that the public needs to understand, needs to know what the, what the police knows. And that is that um, drugs don't simply destroy individual lives and, and degrade individual uh, people, but uh, destroys and, and, and uh, decays, degrades entire communities and peoples that we're not engaged in the mass incarceration of our fellow citizens, that our prisons are not filled with mere drug users. 
that marijuana is in fact a uh, uh, a gateway drug. And in fact, even more than that, according to many studies with today's THC purity levels that uh, is consumed today, actually a kind of catalyst that drives um, future addiction into to other more toxic drugs. Most people today have no clue how dangerous the world has become, how many people and organizations are, are trying to prey upon and destroy our societies and our citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and we need to, to make the public understand that, that we're not just fighting drug cartels. We're fighting some of the world's most powerful narco terrorists uh, who actually happen to be based in Mexico, having their largest foreign tentacles outside of their own country in our countries. Uh, to, to prey upon citizens. If I could kind of interject there too, just because um, that's a really good point. I And I've said this a few times on a few other shows where even the informants we deal with and some of the other bad guys that we just come across, they have explicitly told us, you used to spend 90% of your budget on fighting crime and 10% on whatever else, recruiting and, and retention and different things. You now probably spend... 50% of your budget on fighting crime and 50% on these social justice initiatives, uh, just all these kind of outlandish, like buying into all these special interest groups and what they're saying. So you're 100% right. The public needs to be educated on a lot of the things. They need to see the reality of what's what's actually out there and the, the how there are wolves among the sheep here. That's exactly right. And, and uh, like we talked about earlier, there's only one entity in society that can, can go out and, and target uh, through the use of law uh, the, the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, churches and other social organizations and NGOs cannot do that. It's, it's government through the police. Yeah. Um, the second thing that I think needs to be done, we already talked about that, is to, uh, to reinstitute stigma. You know, stigma is actually... Uh, one of the most powerful tools that society, absent government, but society itself has to, to police itself. Number three, we need to relocate. And what I'm talking about there is, uh, is personal responsibility. The drug epidemic in our country is not caused by poverty or uh, racism or social dysphoria or any other supposed root cause. It's caused by individuals not taking control of their own lives. Uh, leading to healthy, lawful behaviors. Quite simply, individual character and lawful behavior matter. They matter for self, and cumulatively, they matter for society. If not, then according to Edwin Delatre, the country's resources will be exhausted in efforts to save the citizens from themselves. Mm -hmm. Lastly, recommit. Law enforcement does not have the resources remotely proportionate to this threat. We need to commit additional resources to law enforcement at every level, local, provincial, federal, and yes, absolutely at the Mexican border, where we know that the threat emanates from. Um, We know, as we talked about, that drug trafficking is not a nonviolent crime. With 300 Americans dying every single day, it has rightfully been called the most murderous criminal activity in the history of the world. We know after 50 years of experience, since Nixon declared his war on drugs, that drug treatment and prevention are necessary, but that they're only strategically effective when we simultaneously reduce drug availability on the streets of America or Canada. Uh, we also need a whole of government approach. Uh, excuse me. We, we, we proved that law enforcement works. We proved it in the 1960s against LSD, mm. the 70s against heroin. 
80s cocaine, 90s crack, and certainly meth labs in the 2000s. All of those reductions were not complete, but they were greatly achieved with the fair yet vigorous application of the rule of law. We also need a whole of government approach. Uh, every cabinet level agency in, in, in our government, uh, yours too, I believe, uh, needs to be engaged in this struggle. This is not just a law enforcement issue. Um, just like our government is currently doing with, uh, with the green agenda. Now, global warming may be an important topic, but it's not currently killing 110,000 Americans every single year. Mm-hmm. Um, back in the early 1980s, when cocaine first started pouring out of Colombia into North America, uh, President Ronald Reagan picked up the phone and he called his Colombian counterpart and said, you guys either need to start doing something yourselves in Colombia to stem the production and the export of cocaine, or you might as well stop sending us any of your coffee and cut flowers and oil. And, you know, Colombia stepped up and became one of our greatest allies still to this day in, in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, we need to do that today with Mexico and maybe even more importantly with China relative to precursor chemicals uh, moving to Mexico. Uh, And lastly, to the point you just brought up earlier, um, we need to declare every single one of the Mexican drug cartels today as a foreign terrorist organization pursuant to Title VIII U.S. Code Section 219 to bring new tools to bear, new resources to bear, and and clearly what is an existential uh, threat. Mm -hmm. You know, we used to do all of these things, re-educate, re-stigmatize, relocate, and recommit. We need to to re-engage with with all of them. I think you bring up a lot of good points. There's a lot of those values, the morals are kind of lost on society right now. And uh, some of the stuff about personal uh, accountability, making uh, good choices, but also uh, taking responsibility uh, for your actions. You just don't see that as much nowadays. And I think we need to kind of recommit to uh, instilling those in people. So... Um, I do want to give you a, a moment here to uh, say how people can follow your work and uh, your book. Well, thank you very much. Uh, actually, I don't have a, a website up. I'm currently trying to design one as I'm getting uh, more involved in, uh, in the speaking circuit with uh, mainly law enforcement audiences throughout the country. Um, but uh, my book on dope can be found uh, on amazon.com or your favorite bookstore, hopefully. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, I, I occasionally try to write uh, opinion pieces and some mainstream uh, opinion news sites like American Thinker and um, it, the Intellectual Conservative. So occasionally you can read some of my work there. Uh, it's available online, some of my older pieces. But um, if I can just finish with with one yep. point, and, and that is that, uh, you know what, this is our society and, and one worth fighting for and, and fight we must not just with caring and compassionate programs, but but also with an aggressive and wide-ranging drug law enforcement response that upholds the rule of law and what is right against a constant onslaught of predators who only look to get rich off the backs of addiction. To not target, arrest, and imprison those who prey upon our fellow citizens, sometimes with unimaginable violence and barbarity, would not just be cowardly. It would be immoral. Well, I think that's no better said. And I think it's a good place we could wrap up there. And um, I will put the links up to your book and your LinkedIn when I get the episode up. Um, But I want to say thanks for coming on, giving us the time. 
amazing uh, uh, stuff there that you've kind of covered um, throughout your whole career. So if you could hang on the line for a second, um, I'll say bye offline, but I want to thank you uh, just before we go. Well, thank you, Nathan, for what you do and, uh, and, and certainly to, uh, to the tremendous support and partnership uh, that DEA has had over the years with, uh, with our Canadian counterparts. So thank you. Great.